So back in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, we read about Jesus calling his first disciples. He said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It was a call to be with Jesus, to follow after him, to learn from his words, to watch his works, a call to be a disciple. Mathetai is the Greek word. That's what it means, follower or learner. It's the same call that Jesus has put on every single one of your lives. Every single one of you that counts yourself as a believer, a Christian, born again, spirit-filled, Christ-loving, follower of Jesus Christ. It's not a call to invite Jesus into your heart. It's not a call to say some magic prayer. It's not a call to sign a card. It's a call to follow. Follow me. It's not just a call to follow, but it's a call to follow him and to join him in his mission. As you follow me, as you hear my words, as you spend time in my presence, you're going to be transformed. And I'm going to make you into a fisher of men. I'm going to allow you to join me in my mission of fishing for men, of calling other men and women to join you in following me. That's what it means to be a disciple. As you come to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and you sit at his feet, you hear his words and you do the things that he calls you to do, he is consistently molding you into his image. More and more like him, the more time you spend with him. No, we don't walk with the physical Jesus, but as we hear his word, as we spend time alone with him in prayer, as we lift up our voices in song, as we look more like him in this world, it looks a whole lot less like him. He includes us in this work of being fishers of men. So by the time we get to the sixth chapter of Mark's gospel, he's got hundreds of followers, maybe thousands, and most of them are not true disciples. Most of them are just there because they want the stuff that Jesus has. They want the blessings that come from being around Jesus Christ without the commitment and without the suffering. When something better comes along, they're going to fall away. When times get tough, they're going to fall away. When they find something more beautiful to follow after, they're going to fall away. It was only the few, only a fraction, only a remnant, only a small few that were true disciples that truly wanted to follow after Jesus and be included with him in this mission. Those were the ones that were going to endure until the end. Those were the true and faithful disciples. Those are the ones that were going to receive the true blessing of being counted amongst Jesus' disciples, his followers. And out of those, out of those few faithful disciples, those few true followers, Jesus chose 12. We read about it back in Mark chapter, uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. These twelve were going to be more than disciples. They were going to be apostles. There are many people that were called to follow Jesus. There are many people today that are being called to follow Jesus. He's continuing to make disciples today, but only these 12. The word is apostolos. 
means one that is sent out. More specifically, in this instance, it's one that's sent out in the authority of the one that does the sending. This was something more than discipleship. These men, just these 12, were called apostles. Just these 12 plus Paul that would come after. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, Thaddeus, the other James, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the traitor who would be replaced by Mattathias. Just those. Just those were called and given this special authority. Authority to go out and do the works that Jesus did. Authority over unclean spirits. Authority to heal. Matthew tells us authority even to raise from the dead. He sent these men out with this specific authority. Authority that no one, no one today possesses. That they would be his representatives out in this world. This was a big calling. They were going to, they were going to be the very foundations of the church. Scripture tells us that in the end, we're going to find their names inscribed on the foundation of heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, if we, if we look in Luke's gospel, Luke 22, verse 28, says this. You, he's speaking to them, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at the table of my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. These guys were a big deal. And not a one of them was counted as a ruler. Not one of them was counted as a leader in the temple or in the synagogue. Not a one of them was called rabbi. You see, this was God's way of showing that he had rejected what Israel had become. This twisted, man-centered, oppressive, law-focused, man-made, man-centered gospel. This belief that they could somehow earn righteousness before God. So it was a way of showing that he had rejected these people, that he, he was rejecting what these people had become, and he was rejecting what they had made this religion into. He calls these 12, these 12 that had no place in the temple, had no place in the synagogue, had no place as a ruler or rabbi. It was a judgment on what this nation had become. He said, I gave you a good law, a good law that revealed to you my nature. It showed you my holiness. It was meant to put you up against the reality that you yourselves are not holy. It was meant to draw you into myself and to look forward to a Savior, knowing that there's nothing that you can do to be right with me, that in your nature you are sinful, and your desires you are sinful, that there's nothing that you can do in and of yourself to get back to me so that you would long for the day when I would send my Son to free you, free you from sin, free you from self, free you from Satan, free, free you from death. That was what this was meant to be, and instead you made it a stick to beat other people with. You piled burdens upon the weak. Use it as a measuring stick for yourself to try and manufacture your own righteousness. You completely missed it. You missed every bit, every bit of what it was that I meant to do, and so I reject you. You that would be called the leaders of Israel, I reject you, and I call these 12 ordinary dopes. These men that you don't recognize as anything, these are the ones that I'm going to build my church upon. These are going to be the foundation. They, along with the prophets, these are the kind of people that come into my kingdom. Those that sit at my feet and do what I say. Not those that make their life piling law upon law upon law and crushing the people that they're meant to lead. In addition to that, his words, the very words that we study today, the words that we read, that we study, that we memorize, that we meditate on, they were going to be spoken through these guys. These weren't learned men. They had gone to the right schools. They didn't have any of the qualifications. And yet the, the word that we hold today Came through them, either directly through them or through their close associates. Men like 
John Mark, men like Luke, he would speak this word through them, not just in recording what happened during the life of Jesus Christ, but the doctrine. How do we understand what happened in Jesus' life? How do we understand what we're supposed to do in response to that? How do we understand what it means to be a church? God chose to speak the words through these guys. So that when we look back at the early church, in the first century church, what do we see? That they are gathered together and that they are sitting under the authority of the words of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles. How do these men get to this point? These weren't just biographers. They weren't just scribing down what happened in the life of Jesus, as amazing as that would have been. But again, God is speaking to us the doctrine. How are we to understand this life in this people called the church? What are your responsibilities to this gospel? How are you to hold it and to understand it? And he chose to speak it through these plain and ordinary men, and it all began with him calling him to himself. It all began with him saying, I want you to come to me. I want you to come and be with me, and I'm going to entrust you with this authority, authority even to cast out the demons. And so far, all we've seen is them with him. They've not gone out yet. They've been bit players so far, almost like extras. What we see as we study so far is that they're with Jesus, they're learning from Jesus. Certainly, once he called them up on the mountain and he appointed them as apostles, they would have been paying great attention knowing someday we're going to be sent out. But so far, that hadn't happened. So far, they've been with Jesus and, yeah, they've played little roles here and there. They've gone and gotten a boat for them and, and they, they, were, they were going to be there serving Jesus and perhaps physically serving the people that came. But ultimately, they hadn't yet gone out until now. Now it is the time. He's going to send them out even for just a moment. And as we discussed last week, that was in part why he went back home to Nazareth. So it's a rejection. He knew he was going to be rejected. Scripture says that he, he was amazed by what he saw there, but he, he, was not, he was not surprised. He knew the hearts of man, and he knew that he was going to be rejected there. And he knew that the rejection that he received in Nazareth, it was a picture of the broader rejection that he and his disciples and his gospel was going to receive in the world. So as a way of preparing them for that, he takes them back home with him back home to Nazareth, and, and it was there that they see exactly that. His people, even his family, the people that knew him the best, they couldn't get over their own ideas of who he was. This was the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. They couldn't get over their own perceptions, their own expectations of what the Messiah was meant to look like. And so as a result of that, he, he left. But the whole purpose there was in preparing these disciples, preparing specifically these apostles for what we read this morning. So go ahead and stand to your feet, please, as we return to the sixth chapter in Mark's gospel. We're going to begin reading in the second half of the sixth verse. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake, the dust, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? 
Would you show me my Savior, and would you make this book live to me? To your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So second half of verse 6. And he went out among the villages teaching. After leaving Nazareth, after his rejection there, Jesus went out among the villages to continue his teaching. This was Jesus' normal pattern. You may remember back that in the first chapter of Mark, after Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then the crowds just came, people from all around, just throngs of people, and his, as he was healing them, and he was just showing these miraculous signs that he truly was the Christ, the Son of God, the King of the universe. As he was, as he was painting this picture, and the people were just coming by the droves, that night he slipped away. In the early morning hours, he slipped away to be alone with the Father. And the next morning, his followers woke up, and they were panicked. Where are you? Where is Jesus gone? And so they go out, and they find him, and they say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Their expectation being that he was going to relish this crowd. He was going to love the popularity that he was receiving. He was going to come back and give the people more of what they wanted. But instead, what he said, what, said to them was this, Let us go out to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. We said this over and over and over again through Mark's gospel. The purpose for Jesus' miracles, the purpose for his works, was to support his message. It was to make clear that this message is true. I am who I say I am. It wasn't that he didn't have compassion. He did. These were real people with real needs. Jesus could have authenticated his message. He could have shown his power in any way he wanted to. He had compassion and love for the people. But ultimately, the reason that he came out, the reason he was traveling around Galilee, was to preach was to preach and teach the gospel. Repent, believe, and be saved. And it was time now for him to go out and continue doing that. He was going to travel around the villages, his apostles with him. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So he calls them to him so he can send them out. Now, while we're not all apostles, you need to recognize that this is the call on your life as well. Jesus didn't just call you to himself that you can then bask in that glory and never move. He didn't entrust to you the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can hide it in your heart, hide in your back room, and just say, man, I'm so glad I'm saved. He's called you to him so that he could send you out, entrusted with this gospel to share it with the world. Not send everybody to Africa. Not send everybody to the ends of the earth. He may be sending you out to the job site. He may be sending you out to the school. He may be sending you out to the little league field. But he has called you to him to send you out. And you see here that he's sending us out two by two. He's sending them out two by two in pairs. This was the pattern that we would see throughout the book of Acts. People going out in pairs. And practically, this is good. Because pairs, they, they offer accountability. You're going you're gonna to make sure that you're each doing the work. But it, it's also an encouragement that you can lift each other up. Because the likelihood that you're both going to be up on the same day is pretty low. Because this is hard work. Sharing the gospel is spiritual warfare. You have real enemies that want to do anything they can to keep you from sharing that word. And so we read in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. He has not another to lift him up. We're not called to be lone wolf Christians. We're called to do life together. It doesn't have to just be two. It can be a hundred. But the picture here is that when we go out to do the work, it's good to have a brother with us. It's good to have a sister with us. It's good to have somebody to come alongside us so that when we fall, we have somebody to pick us up. In addition to that, Jewish law, specifically in Deuteronomy 19.15, it says that there are two witnesses required to prove the truth of a claim. 
the authenticity of a claim. And so the, the hope here was that as these men went out two by two, they could not only support and encourage and build each other up, but that they would serve as, as witnesses to this testimony because this was something new. This was something radical. This was something that was missed by most. They weren't going to understand it. So then as the two men were there together, they were saying, I can give testimony to this. We have seen, we have heard, we have believed, and now we're coming and we're calling you to the same belief. Repent, believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Giving these men as much an opportunity as possible to, to succeed. Now in Matthew's parallel account, in chapter 10 of Matthew, he says not only did they have the authority over the unclean spirits, but over every kind of disease and sickness, even to raise the dead. You see, an apostle can only be sent out with as much authority as the one doing the sending has. I can't send you out with authority to go down to the car dealership and just get a new truck. I don't have that authority. It's only the authority that I have that I can invest in one that I would send. That's why I don't bother sending anybody out because I don't have all that much. But Jesus Christ has all. He has proven authority. The same authority that mesmerized everybody that saw him, he's now entrusting it to these men so that they can go out and with the word. They can do the same works. He, truly an extension of Jesus. To this point, if you wanted to receive the blessing of Jesus Christ, you would receive the healing or the, or the cleansing. You had a loved one that needed to be raised. You had to get to Jesus. Sure, there was one-offs like the centurion servant, things like that. But for the most part, you had to be around. You had to be near Jesus. Now he was extending this to these six pairs that would go out, and they would do the exact same kind of work he did with his authority. Exousia is the word in Greek. It means authority as in the right to do something, but it also means power as in the ability. Wouldn't have done a lot of good if he had sent them out and says, I'm giving you the right to go and do these things, but not the ability. He's saying, I give you the right and I give you the ability to go out and act just as I have acted in healing and cleansing and even the raising from the dead. Power and authority to speak to demons and demand that they leave and they will up and leave. Now, they've been watching Jesus do these things for a year. I can't even imagine the trepidation in their own heart. They had been there when the man, the demoniac, had, had come to them on the other other side of the Sea of Galilee. They had seen how terrifying that was. I'm used back then. I wondered if they were jumping back in the boat as the man came charging down the mountain towards Jesus. And now they're being told, you're going to go out in my power, in my authority. I'm investing this in you, and I'm sending you out to do those very same kind of works. And then the message, as they, as they went out and they, and they, and they preached, preached this message, because they performed these miracles, because they performed these works, just as with Jesus, they authenticated it. They proved that these men weren't just out there speaking on their own. They're speaking the word of Jesus Christ by doing the same works as Jesus Christ so they could come to believe the messages and know the one that had sent them. No, this wasn't something that they just made up in their own mind. And we need to recognize that this is not the way God continues to work today. He's not calling new apostles today. This is a unique time and a unique mission. That God was investing in these people an authority that he does not invest today because this was a new thing that they were doing. This gospel was so new to the people that they were going out to. Because the Holy Spirit, while it was upon them and it was guiding them, it had not been sent upon and within all believers the way that it is today. And they did not have the recorded message of Jesus Christ. They did not have these words. How did they know that they spoke the words of Jesus Christ? Because he did the, they did the things that Jesus did. That's why we don't experience this today. That's why we don't call ourselves apostles is there a truth to the fact that we are sent out by Jesus Christ as the apostles are? Absolutely. But that same authority is not invested in us. We don't need to walk around trying to raise the dead in our own authority. 
trying to cleanse sick, uh, sick people, trying to cast out demons in our own authority. Are there times when Jesus continues to work through men and do incredible things? Absolutely. Absolutely there are. And the reality is that what we'll find is if you go into some of these darker nations, these unreached people groups, you will see God working in miraculous ways that you don't typically see here. It's a way of breaking through that darkness, of introducing this new gospel. But again, it says men pray to God as they ask him to work on his, act on his authority. This isn't an authority that's been entrusted to us. This was a special moment for a special place and time, and he was doing this. A new work. And to prove that these men had been with Jesus and to prove that this authority had been vested in them, they did it with a word, with a touch. Coming into towns and doing the exact, exact same kind of things that Jesus did. Now, one other point in Matthew's gospel, he tells us that Jesus instructed them to go the way of the Gentiles, excuse me, not to go the way of the Gentiles or enter into the city of the Samaritans. He said specifically to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this can seem confusing to us at first. Now, doesn't the Bible tell us that any who call on the name of the Lord will be saved? Didn't Jesus come to save both Jews and the Greeks? Don't, doesn't Scripture tell us that Israel was going to reject Jesus? Yes, yes, and yes. But the reality is that the promise of God was to Abraham. It was through Abraham that the nations of the world would be blessed. So Jesus was going to come first and share this with this promised people, with these covenant people. He was going to come first and he was going to share this gospel with them, knowing that most were going to reject, that Israel as a whole was going to reject him. But for now, this message was to be focused there. We see the same pattern with the Apostle Paul. As he would go out on his missionary works, he would always go first to the synagogue. Salvation first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Because that's the way that God had promised. It was going to come through them first and he was going to go to them. And I, I don't want to camp out on this too long, but we're going to get to, when we get to Mark 7, we're going to see this as Jesus encounters a Canaanite woman and she's coming to him, and she's, she's begging for the gifts of God. And he's saying, no, not for dogs, for the children, not for dogs. Sounds harsh. Sounds cruel. What they don't understand is to their blessing. This is the way that the world will be blessed. As God sends his son to his promised people, to the sons of Abraham, in accordance with God's plan, knowing that they will reject, and then at the appointed time, it will go out. He will focus then. Now, did he heal Gentiles? Did he save Gentiles that came to him? Absolutely. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There was incredible faith shown by some Gentiles throughout the Gospels as they came. And Jesus didn't turn them away. He, in fact, saved them. But in terms of his focused mission, we wouldn't see it until the, the, the ultimate rejection of Jesus by the people of Israel as signified in his crucifixion. As they showed, we don't accept you as our king. We reject you. We reject your offer. We reject your mission. We reject you as our king. It wasn't until then that we see him telling them to go, therefore, to all the nations as we see there in the book of Acts, as he's saying that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's when the mission then is focused there once Israel has ultimately rejected. We reject you and we therefore call for your death, Jesus. We don't find you our king. We reject you. It was then that the mission would send out. And so for now, they were going to stick to these Jewish towns. Verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Now, these people were going to travel extremely light. This would probably remind some of you of God's command to the people there in Exodus on the night of the Passover. He said this, Exodus 12, 11, In this manner you shall eat it. That's the Passover feast. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. The men were to travel light. Same message for us today. That we are called to travel light. Not to be burdened down by the stuff of this world. 
How many times have you thought in your life, I believe God may be calling me to this, but I got all this stuff. I've got this debt. I've got this mortgage. I've got this responsibility. What he's saying here to them, he's saying to us, is travel light. Let me tell you a little secret. I was a banker before I came here. I was a banker for, I don't know, 18 years, something like that. One of the things that you try to do at a bank is you try to get people, customers, to use every single one of your services. You try to make sure that they paid their bills online, that their paycheck was directly deposited to their account, that everything they did was funneled through you. You know why? Because then they were so entangled with you, the thought of leaving, the thought of going to another bank became just a nightmare for them. Dear friends, I want you to know Satan works in that same way. I'm not saying banks are Satan. We were good folks. Satan works that same way. He wants to so entangle your life with this world. He wants to get you so bound up with the stuff of this world that the thought of packing up and going, wherever it is that Jesus is sending you, just seems too much. Too many burdens. Too many hurdles. So in part what Jesus is saying here is you need to travel light. Don't cling on to the stuff of this world and don't let it cling on to you. In addition to that, though, more than just traveling light, he's pushing these people to trust completely in God's provision. He's pushing them to trust in God's provision because they don't know how these needs are going to be met. It wasn't too terribly long before this that Jesus was preaching to them in the Sermon, sermon on the Mount. He was reminding them that your Father cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, and you're, so, you're worth so much more than that. You don't need to have anxiety about where your food's going to come from tomorrow, how you're going to clothe yourself. No need for anxiety. Trust in your Father. He has it all. He has it all, and he knows what you need. He's going to provide, and so he's pushing them up against that. He's saying, listen, I've said these things, and now let's put that trust to the test. Pack up and go with very little, no money, no bread, no bag. It would have been common in that time for traveling teachers to carry a beggar's bag, to beg for what they need. He's saying, you will not beg. My people will receive you in my name. I've got people in these towns, and some of those are going to receive you. They're going to be some that are receptive to my message. They're going to be receptive to you as my messengers. Not even two tunics. Now that's, the, people would have worn the first tunic close to their body, almost as an undergarment, but the second one would have been more an outer garment. It would have been something that you could have used when you slept under the stars as a blanket or maybe even as a pillow. He's saying, you're not sleeping under the stars either. I'm going to provide for you every need, and so you're going to travel extremely light, just a staff and sandals. Now, there is one variance that you're going to find. It's, as you look in Mark's gospel and you look in Matthew's gospel, excuse me, and you look in Luke's, what you'll find is that Matthew seems to say that Jesus commands him not even to wear sandals. And then in Matthew and Luke, both, it also looks, looks like Jesus is commanding them not even to carry a staff. Now, a staff and a pair of sandals, those were not luxuries. Those were not extras in that time. Those were necessities for traveling up and back. And so, what I have to believe here is that what they're pointing to is not carrying an extra staff or a second set of sandals. It would have been common in that day for some people to carry two staffs. You would have carried one that would have been much like a shepherd's crook or a walking stick, something like that, something for stability. But then many people would have also carried a second stick on their back, almost like a, like a weapon, a staff that they could use to fight off animals and to fight off raiders and people like that seems to me that perhaps what he's saying is you're not going to carry the second staff as a way of defending yourself. Your father will defend you. And then as, as for the second pair of sandals, you may remember back in the book of Deuteronomy, after the people of Israel had been traveling throughout the wilderness for 40 years, you want to know one of the most amazing things in the book of Deuteronomy is to me? Their clothes never wore out, nor did their sandals. 
You can't see the shoes I'm wearing. They're ratty. I only had these for about five years, ten years, and I drive my car everywhere I go. These people traveled in the wilderness. I've been to the wilderness in Israel. It is rocky. It is dry. It is not paved. These men traveled for 40, men and women, children, traveled for 40 years, and their sandals did not wear out. Their clothes did not wear out. I believe perhaps that's what he's pointing to. He's saying those sandals on your feet, they're going to be enough. They're going to carry you through. But either way, what he's saying here is that you need to trust completely on God for your every provision. It was an exercise in trust. Will you trust me enough to pack up and go? You remember when you had little babies and you were packing up to go somewhere. Today we got a few extra bucks, right? When, when Amanda and I were, were, were young and our babies were little, not only did you have to carry all the stuff of babies, but we didn't have extra dollars just to run down and replace some stuff that we already had sitting at home. The thought of leaving and not having everything in order just induced absolute panic. He's telling them, you're not going to go with the things that you would normally need. You're going to trust completely in my Father. Now, you need to understand, though, that this isn't an indication that we are wrong. As disciples today, or even the apostles in that day, that it was somehow wrong to plan ahead or it was wrong to pack a bag. We'll see that with the Apostle Paul. That He would go. There were times when he would go on, on journeys and he would take things with him. What God is saying here, he's not, he's not holding up asceticism as if that's the standard. He's not saying that all messengers of Jesus Christ must take a vow of, of poverty. That we must disavow all of our things. In fact, we'll see that. In Luke twenty two thirty five 35 through 36, Jesus is talking to the men sometime later, and he says to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. And he said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. See, Scripture doesn't talk about poverty as if it is a good thing in and of itself. What he's saying here is, Did you learn the message? Did you learn the lesson that I was teaching you in that day? I'm teaching you dependence, not asceticism. I'm teaching you to trust in my Father. Do you remember the time that I sent you out and you had nothing? Did you lack anything? No, sir, we did not. Good. Have you learned that lesson? Yes, sir, we have. This time, take a money bag. It's being sensitive to the Spirit of God and then trusting whatever it is that he's sending you to take whatever it is he tells you to take and nothing more. Not to be burdened down with extra. Not to load up for all the possible what ifs. That's our temptation. What if? What if? And what he's saying here is, no, you trust my father with the what if. He is the one that is outside of time. He is the one with endless provision. You trust him with the what if. Sometimes that means taking a bag? Yes. Sometimes that means spending time getting all your plans in order? Yes. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's not allowing anxiety over what lays down the road to get you all bound up, to burden you down with stuff to where you just can't move because you've got so much junk on you. Trusting that he's going to provide in addition to that. Verse 10, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. That's a very strange way to phrase that, right? It's like wherever you are, there you are. Like stay there until you leave. What he's saying though is within that town, within that town, wherever you go, wherever you stay once you get there, you remain there until you leave that place. He's teaching them not only to be dependent upon God, but to be content with whatever it is that God gives them in that day. See, it would have been natural. In this part of the world, it was, it was expected that people would be incredibly hospitable, that they would make way in their house, they would offer you whatever they had. This was a very hospitable culture, particularly amongst traveling teachers like this. And so there would have been great expectation that somebody was going to welcome them into their home. And there was also, because of that, there was the tendency for great abuse. 
that you would disregard the kindness, the generosity of these people that welcomed you in. And so what you see him saying here is that as you enter a town, let's say that you encounter a poor man and he's got a humble home and he makes room for you. He says, here, come and stay in my home. What I've got for you is a little bit of broth, a little bit of bread, a little bitty room with a hard bed to sleep on. Come and you receive that. And then the next day you go out and you meet a rich man and he's got a lavish home. And he's got lamb for you to eat. And he's got, all the, he's got much more comfortable surroundings for you to come and camp out. And you must deny that request. Lest you ruin your witness by harming the man that opened up his home in the first place. That you're to be content with whatever it is that God provides. You trust God with the provision and then you find contentment in whatever that is. That's hard. We're so tempted all the time to be looking for bigger, better, prettier. We're always looking to trade up. No one's ever satisfied. I struggle with the sin of discontentment maybe more than any other. Always wanting something better, something bigger, something more. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I can better serve God. If all these ducks would just get in a row. And he's saying, no, you're not going to do that. Wherever I place you, whatever I send in your way, you're going to receive that and you're going to be content with that. That's what we see the Apostle Paul talking about in the scripture that is often misquoted. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I speak of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What he's saying is Jesus Christ can strengthen me to do all things, and that all thing he's pointing to is I can continue to serve him and find contentment in whatever it is, an empty belly or a full belly. I've known both. A comfortable bed and a hard bed, I've known both. A big home and a tiny home, I've known both. Being out here alone, feeling like the only Christian in all the world, or being surrounded by the brethren, I've known both. Whatever situation God puts me in, I'm going to find contentment there. I'm going to serve him there. I'm not going to wait until things get better. That's the temptation. To continue to wait until everything gets right. If I can just get everything right, then I can truly be used of God. And he says, no, I'm using you now where you are. The things you have, I gave them to you. Would you say that I failed you? Would you say that I've not been right? That I've not been good? That I've not been faithful? Verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you, shake up, when you leave, you shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. So Jesus had showed by his trip to Nazareth that the people did not need to expect to be received by everyone that they needed to anticipate that they were going to be rejected. Now, in Mark's parallel verse, what he's te- he gives them just a, a, a long stretch of teaching about how to prepare their hearts and about how to be on guard and about the anticipation that they were going to be rejected. The way that Mark does this is with a bit of a sandwich. Mark loves these sandwiches, right, where he begins a story, he tells another story, and then he comes back and finishes the first. He does that here. We just read this morning's text, and then if you skip down to verse 30 in your Bibles, you look at Mark 6, verse 30, it says this. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all about what they had done and taught. In the middle, in between there, what you find is an interaction with Herod. King Herod, in, in, in his interaction, his understanding of who Jesus is, his response to the gospel that, that, that Jesus and his disciples are teaching and the works that they're doing. In addition to that, you find out about the beheading of John the Baptist. We're going to study that, God willing, next week. What I believe God is doing is he's showing us the context in which these men went out. They didn't just go out into a world where people didn't understand the gospel. 
They didn't even just go out into a world where people didn't necessarily receive the gospel. They went out into a world that was hostile to the gospel. See, this is what happens when the kingdom of God meets the kingdoms of man. The kingdom of man does not go softly. They do not go quietly. They're going to rage. This shows you the context in which these men had to have incredible trust in God's provision. They felt very safe there with Jesus. Look, when you can see somebody raising someone from the dead, you tend to be a little more brave. And now as you're sent out from his presence, all of a sudden panic is tempted to, tempts to set in. What's going to happen is I go out in this world. I know what they did to John the Baptist. They took his head off for speaking the truth, for speaking God's truth, for calling a man to repent and make right. This is the setting in which these people went out. They were not going to be received by, by all. And in addition to that, he's telling them how they're to respond. Now, there would have been this temptation for them to just be despondent, just dejected and go back home whenever they go to the first town. Look, any of you that have shared the gospel with any level of consistency, you know that sense of rejection. And you almost feel bad at times, don't you? You share the gospel with somebody, and and, and Satan has a way of convincing you, look, you're inconveniencing these people. You're a jerk. You're coming to their house on their territory or to their job or to their world, and you're pushing them to think about things they don't want to think about. Leave them alone. It's tempting to just go, you know what? Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I am insensitive. Maybe I am narrow-minded and bigoted. Maybe I need to stop this. It would have been easy for them to be tempted to do that. Or it would have been tempting for them to be mad. We read in Luke's gospel, Luke 9, 54 through 56, by the time when Jesus' men were rejected in a Samaritan village. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You ever been tempted there? Just burn them up. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. We don't call down God's wrath. It's the parable of the wheat and the tares. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know who are truly his or who will be brought to be truly his in the end. It is our job to go out there and to share the gospel. That we don't swing the sword of justice. We don't call down wrath upon men. So he tells the apostles here, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. See, the Jewish people, whenever they would travel and they would go to Gentile lands, they didn't even want to bring the dirt back. They didn't even want to bring the dust back lest it defile their precious land. Lest it defile Israel. And so they would shake it off. They would shake it from their hair. They would shake it from their clothes. They would shake it from their shoes. Not even the dust of these pagan lands is going to come into this promised land. It was a statement of judgment. It was a reminder to the world of their separation from God. It was a reminder to the world that they did not possess the promises. It was a reminder to the world of their sin and their lostness. We also see in the Old Testament where we have prophets acting in that very same way. It's a sign to those that refuse to repent. They refuse to turn. They refuse to do justice, to live lives of righteousness. We saw it with Nehemiah as he came against the people that had, opp- that had oppressed the poor. He shakes it out. He shakes the dust out of his garment. He says, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. It was a sign. It was a statement of judgment. And so what Jesus is telling his apostles is that as you go into these towns, these places that reject you, and they are going to reject you, as they reject you, you give them a visible sign. I don't care what your role is in the temple. I don't care that you're a ruler of a synagogue. I don't care what sacrifices you've offered. I don't care that they call you rabbi. 
I don't care what tribe you come from. If you do not repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not true Israel. Salvation will not come. This is an act. This is a statement. This is a testimony against them. And what a testimony. Can you imagine how badly that hurts? These men come to you with this gospel. You reject them, and they shake the dust from their shoes. I don't even want to take the shoes from your town back into this place. We see the same pattern throughout the book of Acts. And it sounds harsh, doesn't it? But we need to recognize that the very act of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in and of itself brings judgment. People love to quote Jesus' words, judge not lest you be judged. What they don't recognize is that four verses later it says this, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. The same Jesus tells us to make sure that we judge with the right judgments. What he says in that text is to remove the plank from our eyes so that we can remove the speck from our brother's eye. What he's saying is you must be harsh with yourself. You must judge the sin in your own life. You must remove the sin in your own life. You must remove the plank from your own eye so you can see rightly to judge. It's an assistance to someone to remove a speck from their eye. It's an act of love. And it's a preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that God has called us, specifically he has called us to differentiate between those that are truly inquisitive, those that have true questions. Listen, it is right and it is good as you go out and share the gospel for people to come back with the what ifs. Probing questions, doubts, all of those things, absolutely acceptable and good. But for those that would trample, that would despise, that would reject, that would take the words of Jesus Christ and use them as weapons, we've got to make the judgment that we say no more. No more. We're not the judge. His word. By the standard of his word. That by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're making this statement. And, and we can only hope that as, as some of these people in these towns, as they saw the dirt shaken off, sure, absolutely this is an offensive thing. Look, I, I had a brother last week that after I finished my sermon, he halfway jokingly texted me and said, thank you, I've been properly offended. And I replied and said, I offend myself when I preach at times. We talked about that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a scandal. It's a stumbling block. It's an offense to people. But we, we can only hope that as we go out and we push people up against this truth, we push people up, up against the truth and we call them to repent, we warn them about the consequences of not repenting. You need to understand that we don't, we don't preach a gospel which says, repent, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and be saved. But if you want to find your own way, if you just want to say a prayer, if you want to go on living whatever life you were living before, if you want to be unchanged, that's okay. It'll all work out in the end. No. Repent and be saved means by definition, don't repent and be condemned. Listen to Jesus' words, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. An incredible offer, an incredible promise for the whosoevers. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord. That's why Jesus came. He did not come to bring condemnation. He came to bring salvation to whoever would call on the name of the Lord. 
Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You are choosing condemnation when you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a judgment. That's a testimony. Not one that we manufacture. Not one that comes from our own minds and our own hearts. From the words of Jesus Christ, and this is the judgment. The light that has come into the world, the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Saying to the people that will not listen, you don't waste another moment there. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is offered to all, but it is forced on none. We couldn't do it anyway. But the moment in which these people reject you, you pack up and you go to someone else that might want to hear. Knowing that that's offensive. Shaking the dust from your feet is going to be offensive. The gospel is going to be offensive. Do you need to do that every time you go and share the gospel? Look, you go and knock on somebody's door. You walk through their flower bed and get mulch in your sandal. You say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus Christ? They say, ah, you know what? Not really today. It's not a good day. Take your mulch. No. But you need to recognize that you've got an obligation to preach the fullness of God's revelation. The full counsel of his word. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it begins with sinners destined for hell. Completely separated from God. It makes it clear to men, all you have to do to go to hell is nothing. Continue along the path that you have chosen. What I offer to you is life. Jesus Christ came to save the world, and I offer that to you today. And may I warn you that if you choose not to follow after this, you're choosing condemnation. Again, we don't know what God's doing in people's lives. Again, the wheat and the tares. We don't rip them up. The thief on the cross was on his last moments. And in that moment, he came to understand. You've heard these stories. People that just lived horrendous lives. Horrendous lives. And yet God brings them to the end of themselves and they come to believe. They move beyond the offense and maybe the fear, but beyond the fear and on to hope. The promise of Jesus Christ is for them too. That's what these men were doing. This wasn't pride. This wasn't arrogance. They didn't enjoy it. Jesus Christ himself wept. Scripture tells us that God does not enjoy the destruction of the wicked. So we don't do this with a haughtiness, remembering that we ourselves didn't bring ourselves to faith. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Matt, uh, Matt, Matthews, we're on first name basis. You know, Matt, <laughs> my buddy Matt uh, preaches that the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, and Luke, that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same thing that John the Baptist preached. It's the same thing that Jesus preached. It's the same thing. Yes, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe and be saved. It's that the king has come. The king that created everything that is, that sustains everything that is, that has ownership over everything that is, that has authority over everything that is, he has come, and wherever the king is, the kingdom is also. And there's only one right response to that, and that is to give yourself completely, to turn away from all other kings, from all other gods, and to give yourself completely to this king. That's the choice. And the only way that you can receive the blessings that come from kingdom citizenship is by honoring the king. That's the gospel that they preached. And you need to recognize that that's the only gospel we have to reach. You don't get to go out representing the name of Jesus Christ and manufacture your own message. There's only one message of salvation. He called you to him that he may send you out that you can preach that message and that message only. 
Christ and Christ crucified. That's all I got. I get called to do funerals. I don't do very many weddings, but I get called to do a lot of funerals. And I get called to do a lot of funerals for people I don't know for some reason. And I love it because I get to go and preach the gospel. And I tell the people, when they ask me, will you come and preach my so-and-so's funeral? I say, yes, but you need to know, I didn't know them, and I'm not going to be one of those preachers that pretend like I did. I hate that. I hate going to funerals where men stand up there and pretend like they knew this person. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go, and I'm going to stand before those people, and I'm going to say, someday, someday it's going to be your turn in the box. Let me tell you what the offer is for you. Let me tell you your only option. Let me tell you the only way that your family could stand here and have any confidence. That's all I got. Last gospel, last we, uh, wedding funeral I did, I said that. I remember I stood there, and the family stood there with blank stares, like, I thought you were going to tell us about Meemaw. We're out in the heat. It was a graveside only. I'm in a full suit, sweating. They're sitting there sweating. And I rained down thunder of the gospel. And when I'm done, and they're sitting there staring at me like, yeah, but tell us how pretty Meemaw was. I told them, that's all I got. That's all I got for you. It's all we got. That's why we study this word, consume this word, live this word. So it just flows out of us, man. Jesus, in, in Matthew's gospel, one of the things that Jesus tells these people is, you don't need to figure out beforehand what you're going to say. A Father's Spirit is going to bring you to the words. He's going to speak through you. We can be those people. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to bring us to remembrance of the things that Jesus has said. But if you've not spent the time, what's he going to bring you to a remembrance of? I mean, listen, John 3.16 is enough. There have been plenty of men saved with John 3.16. But the depth, of our, the depth of our trust and our belief and our knowledge and our understanding and our love for this word can be part of what God equips us with. You don't have to be a genius. I was reading a... I was reading a uh, a book last, uh, yesterday, uh, it's called 10 That Changed the World. It's, it's about just some missionaries, 10 important missionaries. You could have written about a million, but these, these 10 critical missionaries in the life of the church and how God used them. And, and, and the, it's cool because the way this book breaks out is that with each one of these missionaries, it gives us kind of their, their favorite verse those passages of scripture that they clung on to. And the thing that's amazing is as you read these biographies, these mini biographies of these missionaries, they're all over the map. You got brilliant men that are doctors. You got dudes that flunked out of high school. You got people that can barely read, and then by the power of God, they're translating God's word into other languages. And what you find is, is these men go out there and they do the work of God in incredible persecution. You're talking about men whose wives are starving to death before their eyes. Those little babies hadn't eaten because their mothers can't produce anything for the babies. Watching their families die, men that are strung upside down in prisons being accused of being spies, what do they have to cling on to in that day? This. What do they have to preach to the other prisoners? This. And I let it sit on my shelf. I let it sit in my truck. Because reading's hard. The words are hard to understand. Dear friends, God never said it wasn't going to be work. Y'all got quiet. I'm assuming that means you're with me. Verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I need to, I need to speed up here. So 
I can't imagine, like you think about some of these, these apostles that you think less about, Simon the Zealot or Bartholomew. Can you imagine those dudes the first time they come up to a demon-possessed man and they say, demon, get out, and it happens. Just like Jesus promised. The authority that he had promised to give him, it actually happens. And we see him anointing with oil here. And, and oil was a medicine back then. We see it with the uh, Good Samaritan as, as he cared for the beaten traveler with, with oil. Particularly olive oil would have been used as medicine. But it was also a way of setting people apart. We do that here at times. You've seen us do that on Wednesday nights. There's no magic power in the oil. It's, it, it, perhaps, I believe, with the apostles, maybe a way of making clear that it is ultimately by God that you are healed. He's invested that authority in me, but this is God's work. And it's a way of setting people apart. It's a way of representing God's presence and God's blessing on, on somebody, God's anointing on somebody. And so we see that. that is, they set these people apart and they, they anoint them. And they were, people, were, people were healed. People were cleansed. And then, of course, as we skip all the way down to verse 30, that, that kind of caps this sandwich. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. They weren't ready. This wasn't the final. This was the maiden voyage. This wasn't the final journey. As I said before, they had the Holy Spirit, but not the fullness that they would receive on the day of Pentecost. They still had much to learn. And I can't even imagine the stories that were told around the campfire that night. I would imagine probably they trickled in, right, because they... Probably they went different places. I don't imagine they all came back the same night. But I can imagine as they came in, and Jesus was just probably smiling and laughing and, 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 and hearing their stories and instructing them and going, you did what? No, no, no. Let me tell you what you should have done, right? As he instructed and trained and prepared them. Then looking forward, they needed to be with him. They needed to continue to learn from him. They needed to continue to be in his presence. And, of course, looking forward. That day when his Holy Spirit would dwell within them, the same Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And while we've not been called to be apostles, we don't have this same authority invested in us. We have been called in the name of Jesus Christ. He has called us to us to send him out. And it's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing because we know where we came from. Does Satan ever do that to you? You get ready to go and share the gospel and he reminds you of where you came from. Makes you question why that person would ever listen to you. What if they find out who you used to be? It's a terrifying thing because the world rejects it and you feel like an inconvenience to them. You feel at times like you're inconsiderate, like you're crashing somebody's party. But dear friends, on the authority of God's word, I'm telling you that he's called you to do exactly that. And he has said, surely I will be with you even under the end of the age. He is with you in that. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for the promise that we are sent out, Father. We are sent out, but we are not alone. Not only are you with us, but you are with us until the very end, that there is nothing that can separate us from you or from your love, that we are secure in your hands, and that, Father, your message, your mission, it will not fail that the gates of hell will not stand against it, Father, that you are building your church, that you are calling true saints to yourself, and that you have chosen to include us, broken vessels as we are, that you have chosen to include us in this work. Father, I pray that you would encourage us now, that you would build up an army, Father, an army of men, women, students, children, equipped with nothing more than your word and filled with your spirit, out amongst the dark world, sharing that word and calling other disciples to you, Father. We pray now as we lift our voices in song.
the words we sing would be pleasing to your ears. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.